All right, well, good morning, Revolution. It's great to be with you again today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 today, which should give us a sense of anticipation and expectancy, because if you don't know, Romans chapter 8 is probably one of the most well-known and most loved chapters in the entire Bible. In fact, my friend before the 815, he said, you're preaching Romans 8, don't mess it up. Because this is the real deal. I love the way that 20th century Welsh preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones described the book of Romans, and particularly chapter 8. He said, someone has said that in the whole of scriptures, the brightest and most lustrous and flashing stone or collection of stones is this epistle to the Romans. And that of these, chapter eight is the brightest gem in the cluster. So we are looking at the brightest gem in the brightest collection of stones, which is why I am so excited to dig into it with you. Now, with that said, I am not a gray-haired, famous preacher from another country. And so I feel like I should put this into my own words. So the way I would describe Romans 8 is this. Romans 8 is the pepper jack pretzel of the book of Romans. Now let me explain what I mean. My wife's favorite place on the entire planet is Disney World. Any other Disney fans, Disney freaks in here? Okay, yeah, the rest of them are at Disney right now. So my wife is a Disney freak. She loves Disney. In fact, she grew up in Orlando. And so her and her family went frequently. They went all the time. And even after they moved to Georgia, it was still something that they tried to do as often as they could. And so I knew that when I married Kara, when I married into this family, I was marrying into Disney, and I had to be okay with that because that would have been a deal breaker. Now, thankfully, I do enjoy Disney, so uh, we don't have to do as much counseling. But uh, nonetheless, we enjoy going because I'm a fan of it as well. And you may think, well, you know, don't, doesn't it get boring? Don't you run out of things to do? First off, don't say that around Kara. It could get ugly really fast. But secondly, it really doesn't because there's plenty of things to do. There's a lot of great things there. We like to walk the boardwalk and go to the hotels and uh, go to the parks. And I like to shoot aliens on the Buzz Lightyear ride, even though I'm 27 and should not, you know, be so excited about that. I still enjoy it. But my favorite thing in all of Disney is the jalapeno pepper jack cheese pretzel. It's my favorite experience of going to Disney. In fact, we could do the whole thing. We could go to the parks. We could watch the fireworks. We could have the whole experience. And if I don't get my pretzel, it's a waste of a trip. And I know you're going, Corey, it's just a pretzel. Obviously, you've never had one or you wouldn't say such foolish things because I do believe that they are handcrafted by the apostles and they are sent down on wings of angels into the laps of common folk like us so that we can enjoy the common grace of Jesus. Amen, anyone? Okay, all right. So I believe this, and so we go to Disney, a lot of great things, but there is one shining moment, and that is the pretzel. And so when we think about the book of Romans, we can go to it and say, hey, this whole book is fantastic. It's the, the brightest collection of stones, but Romans 8 is really one of the brightest 
gems. And so I'm excited to dig in. So again, if you have a Bible, uh, we're in Romans 8. Let's start in verse one together. Paul starts, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I have 10 more verses that I'm supposed to get through for the rest of this time. But if we wanted, we could just camp out for like 30 minutes on this verse because there is so much here. This may be one of the most important verses for Christians to to treasure and to store away in their hearts as we follow Christ, as we go through life. And it's a great verse in and of itself, but I think it becomes even greater when put in its proper context. So think about what we talked about last week at the end of Romans 7. If you remember verses 24 and 25, verse 24 ended with Paul's brokenness and despair over the ugliness of his sin and what it did to his Savior. So verse 24, it culminated in this outburst where Paul says, wretched man that I am. Wretched, I'm in despair over my sin. And then he jumps into verse 25 and he reminds himself of the most important thing. He forces himself to look up from his despair to his deliverer. And he says, even though I'm wretched, thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the deliverer even in the midst of our sin. And so really verse one of chapter eight is just a continuation of that praise that started in verse 25 of chapter seven. And the reason I think that's important, it makes the verse sweeter is because this verse is not on the coattails of Paul's accomplishments. It's not on the coattails of Paul's successes Rather, this is on the coattails of Paul's failures, of Paul's struggles. And so in light of all of those those failures and struggles, he says, still, because Christ is my deliverer, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This phrase, no condemnation, is a legal term, and it means to be free from any debt or penalty. And based on what we have seen in this series and what we've seen in the book of Romans is that we have a very high amount of debt. We have a large penalty coming our way, a large punishment coming our way if we are not in Christ because Romans 1 through 3 is all about that. It's all about exposing our debt, showing us the penalty that we have gathered over time. And so for this to say there is no condemnation, there's no debt is a really big deal to people like us who got a lot of debt. In fact, I would argue that the more debt that you have collected in your life, the more uh, punishment you have coming your way, the more relief and joy this proclamation of no condemnation brings you. Let me explain it in a story. Many of you have probably heard this story, but last month there was a, a really cool debt-related story that was inspiring right here in Atlanta. Morehouse College graduates were enjoying a commencement speech by philanthropist and investor Robert F. Smith. And at the end of his talk, he dropped a bomb on them and he said, hey, by the way, I'm paying all of your debt off. So the whole class, I think it, it came out to some $40 million dollars. 
And so you can imagine these people are freaking out. And it's pretty fun if you watch the video because at first there's sort of this delayed response where I think people are going, one, did I just hear that right? Two, is this guy kidding? But once they get past that, after this kind of slight delay and the light bulbs start going off and they're like, oh, this guy's not kidding. He is really about to do what he just said. They flip out. I mean, they start cheering and chanting together and throwing their caps and applauding. I mean, the whole place erupts and it's a really cool thing to experience. But now let me ask you a question. Who is the most excited in that graduation crowd? Some of y'all are like the parents. That's who. (laughs) But really the ones that are most excited are the ones that have the most debt. The ones that have the most debt are the ones that are most excited. Now, again, everyone's gonna be excited. If you owe 20 grand, you're still pumped. That's 20 grand. But if you owe 220 grand, you're gonna be backflipping out of that graduation. You're gonna be moonwalking out, floating on a cloud because you don't have to carry this burden anymore. And so if we think about this in light of verse one, we have this cosmic debt that we have been collecting over our lifetime through our sins, through our transgressions. And this debt is against the God of the universe who will judge every person and to whom every knee will bow. So when we put it into perspective, that's, that's pretty weighty. It's pretty weighty that we have all of this debt, this penalty coming our way to the God of the universe. And yet, the craziest thing is that this God, who had every right to punish, every right to penalize, said, I'm going to pay that debt. That debt that you have accumulated with all the sin, all the failures, I got that. The penalty that was coming your way because you never could have paid off the debt, I took that. The punishment coming your way because you couldn't have handled the debt, I took that. That's the graciousness of God. That for people who should be pretty in debt, God says, there's no debt. There's no penalty. There's no punishment because I put it on my son. We're just in verse one. Told you Romans eight is good stuff. And so we realize there's no condemnation. And like those students, we rejoice over this. But then Paul goes on in verse two And he shows us why there's even more reason to rejoice. Verse two, he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Paul says there's no debt or penalty because the spirit of God has set you free from captivity to sin and death. And this is interesting because it shows us that this Blessing here is both legal and it's real life. It's legal and it's functional. Legally, we are not condemned. We are in right standing with God. And functionally, we have now been empowered by the spirit of God. We've been set free from the clutches of sin so that we can follow God. So it's both. We are no longer penalized and we are no longer bound Now, we know, based on what we saw last week, we're always going to struggle with sin. 
We're always going to go back and forth. We have this duality in us. But Paul says, you are not a slave to that sin anymore. And the craziest part about this is that it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. Look how this freedom came about. Verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God has a particular mission and that mission is to condemn sin. And so the law comes, but the law can't accomplish the mission. The law can't condemn sin. In fact, the law just condemned us. It just showed us our need for saving, our need for righteousness. And so really we are just left condemned at this point. That's all that the law did. Look at the way Martin Luther says it. He says, the law proved itself weak because it did not accomplish what it commanded. This was not the fault of the law, but that of the flesh that is of men who seeking earthly possessions did not love the righteousness of the law. The law reveals our need for saving, but it cannot accomplish what it commanded. And so the question then becomes, if the law cannot fill its own requirements, what or who can? Look at the end of the verse. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Did you catch that? God sent his own son in human flesh and bones so that he could accomplish the job. Let's take it a step further. If Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that means Jesus is God. So what this means is that God became a man. God put on flesh and bone. Now we know that God is still, or Jesus was still 100% God on this earth, but he was also 100% man. And Paul is emphasizing his humanity here. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus ate like us? He got hungry like us. He slept like us. He grew tired like us. Jesus experienced the full gamut of human emotions. And he did this on purpose. He came as a human for a reason. Because who needed to be saved from the penalty of sin? Who needed to be saved from the punishment of sin? Not your dog. Not your cat, although probably <laughs> most cats could use a little saving grace. Not the trees, not the ocean, humans. We needed saving. So God took on the form of man to save man. And it's crazy that if we think about this, Jesus is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. All things were created through him and for him. And he leaves his perfection to enter our brokenness, to condemn sin, even though we didn't do anything to warrant it. That is the magnificent grace of God. We aren't condemned because the spirit has set us free and Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh. Paul continues in verse four. 
He explains another beautiful benefit of this great incarnation act. He says he condemns sin in the flesh, verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God did all of this to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And then it says in us. I love this verse because it draws our attention to one of my favorite doctrines in all of the scriptures, and that is the imputation of righteousness. If you want to impress your Christian friends at board game night, you're welcome. Imputation of righteousness. What this means is that because Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the law, he was perfectly righteous, and I have put my trust in him to be my righteousness, I now have the righteousness of Christ in me meaning I get Jesus's perfect track record. Earlier in the series, <clears throat> excuse me, earlier in the series, Pastor Jason uh, described being justified with some wordplay. He said being justified means that in God's sight, it's justified, never sinned. It's a great way to think about that. And I think here in verse four, we can take it a step further with this doctrine of imputation. So not only does it mean justified, never sinned, in light of this, it now means that God sees me justified, always obeyed. So it's not just that I haven't done the bad things. Now it means that because I have the righteousness of Christ in me, God sees me as if I've always done the good things. Justified, never sinned, and justified, always obeyed. I get the track record of Jesus. His righteousness is credited to me. Sinclair Ferguson goes so far as to say, in the sight of God, we are actually as righteous as Jesus Christ. And that can make us uncomfortable. Not as righteous as Jesus. Well, no, not in your flesh but you have no righteousness anyway. So if all your righteousness is in Christ, then this has to be true. And this is why the prophet Isaiah refers to the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus, as the good news of happiness. We don't like that word in Christian circles. And yet Isaiah chooses it on purpose. He says the gospel is the good news of happiness. Because when you know these truths that you are not condemned, you're set free. Jesus has condemned sin. His righteousness is transferred to you. Then the only result is happiness and joy and delight that God would choose to do this. It's the great news of happiness. And if we understand this, if we begin to grasp these truths and embrace them, then it begins to change everything. And that's what I think Paul gets into next. You may have noticed that at the end of verse four, he told us who these benefits were for. He says, this is for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so really what I think Paul is getting at next in the next four verses from verses five to eight, I think what he's getting at is the result of all of these blessings, the atonement, the righteousness, the freedom, 
the result of that must be that we walk according to the Spirit. The result must be that we now follow this good God as he enables us by his spirit in us to obey. Let's look at verse five together. Paul's gonna explain what this walking according to the spirit means. Verse five. It says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So now Paul is going to use this contrast between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And what he's telling us here is that if we live according to the spirit, we have to set our minds on the things of the spirit. And while our thoughts and thinking has a lot to do with how we live, it's more than just that here. He's not just saying, hey, think about God all the time. Think about theology all the time. It's it's fuller than that. Tim Keller says that this phrase means to focus intently on something, to be preoccupied with something, to have the attention and the imagination totally captured by something. You see how that's a lot different? It's a lot more robust of an explanation This expands Paul's view to where it involves the intellect, it involves the affections, and it really involves us centering our entire lives on the things of the Spirit. And what are the things of the Spirit? Well, the things that honor God, the Spirit points to Jesus, and so we can start there. So we can ask ourselves some questions in light of this. Are our minds and hearts totally captured by the things of God? Does the gospel, which we just spelled out, still amaze us and move us? Does it still bring us this joy? Does the mission of God and the call of God on our lives still preoccupy our lives in the ordinary, mundane days? When left alone to think about whatever we want, do our minds naturally go to the things of the spirit or do they go to sinful desires? We have to ask ourselves those questions. Now, on the other hand, if we're trying to test the other side of it, are our truest affections, desires, and thoughts actually stuck on sinful desires? Is our ambition in life wrapped in selfishness and self-centeredness? Are we bent on social status Does the spirit of God, the word of God, the cross of Christ, does that still move us? Does it cause us to reorient our lives and follow after God or is it just another thing? Where are our minds set? What are our imaginations captured by? Where is our heart set on? This is what Paul is getting at here. Now, I already said that we're always gonna struggle with sin. So there is a difference between this fleshly mindset in verse five of chapter eight and the fleshly struggle in chapter seven, verses 22 through 23. Remember there, Paul said, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. 
So we will struggle, but there's a difference between struggling with the flesh and being set on the flesh. There is a difference between struggling with the flesh and pursuing satisfaction in the flesh. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying, hey, you gotta be perfect. You gotta follow perfectly. We already talked about the fact that Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the law, but he's talking about the effects of that. Does it change you? Do those blessings transfer into your actions and now you walk according to the Spirit? You'll struggle with the flesh, but where is your mind set? So Paul's explaining what this means in verse five, but then he goes on in verse six to explain the results of these two mindsets. I think this is really important. I work with students, and so students like to ask the question why a lot. They don't wanna just know what to do. They wanna know why should I do this? And I think verse six is giving us the why of setting our minds on the things of the spirit. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Here are the two results. You orient your life around the flesh, around your sin, it's gonna lead to death. Not just eternal death in the end if you never repent, but, but a death now, a brokenness now, an emptiness now of not being connected to Christ. Or if you are following God in the things of the spirit, it will lead to life and to peace. Now, obviously, if someone came to you and said, there's two doors, this one leads to death, this one leads to life and peace. Which one do you want? Most people are gonna go life and peace. Even people who don't believe in God will go, well, yeah, I'd rather have life and peace. So it's obvious if it's painted like that, but that's not really how life works. Oftentimes what happens is, unfortunately, what looks good on the outside and appealing to our sinful eyes is actually death on the inside. And the things that will lead us to life and peace sometimes don't look as appealing on the outside because we are fallen people. That's exactly why we fall for the traps of sin. You know, earlier this month, we took a bunch of our students to a mission camp, and it was an awesome experience. Got to see God move in some amazing ways. But the thing about camp is it's not just life-changing. It's also a lot of fun. And so you come back with stories from camp experiences pretty much any year you go. And so I remember when I was still living in Texas, we would take our students to a camp every year as well. And if you can try to imagine it, do your best South Texas is actually hotter than Hotlanta. It's hotter and it's more humid. And so we decided, hey, great idea. Let's take students out in the hottest time of the year. Might as well just walk them out to a desert. And so that's what we did. We had these summer camps. And I remember there was one year in particular where after about the second day, we ran into a very big problem. And that problem was that students were passing out in droves. And that's only a good thing if you're at a Pentecostal camp. This is not a move of God when you're at the Baptist camp. And so students were passing out in droves and no matter how much we told them, 
hydrate yourself, drink something. They just kept dropping like flies. And so we had to figure out what was going on. Why is this happening? Why is everyone overheating other than the fact that we're in South Texas? And so we realized what was happening is that on the side of the gym, they had just put in a brand new monster energy drink machine. And so students thought, I'm overheated. I'm exhausted. I've been, you know, running around playing basketball. I've been running to the pool and back and I need some hydration. And so they would literally go and just start buying these monster energy drinks. Some of them would, would walk out with an armful of like two or three just to make it through the day as if they needed it anyway. They're students for crying out loud, but that's what they did. And it was working for a while. They were really energetic until they ended up in the nurse's cabin because they weren't hydrated anymore. And so they'd go after this thing that they thought this is what I need. This is what's going to give me what I desire. This is going to give me what I want, only to realize that it actually didn't do that at all. It did not fulfill their desires. And so when we think about sin, when we think about this mindset on the flesh or on the spirit, oftentimes people will get to a place where they are thinking if I just set my mind on what I want, the things of the flesh, my cravings, that is going to give me my truest desires. That's gonna give me what I need. That's gonna give me the joy, the life, the peace that I hope for. And God is saying, no, 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 no. Don't, don't listen to your, your fallen self. Don't look with your fallen eyes what you really need and what you really desire is in Christ. It's as we follow God in the power of the Spirit. So Paul is challenging us. He's urging us, in a sense, to say, hey, one of these leads to death. One of them leads to life and peace. Let's choose rightly. But then he goes on in verses seven and eight. He tacks on something that's really interesting and really important. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In case you haven't noticed yet, Paul uses some strong words in the book of Romans, and he is okay with that. And so this word hostile, the Greek root word that this comes from means enemy. And so he's saying this is a hostility and an enemy posture because, why? Because you won't submit to God's law. So he says, if you're in the flesh, focus on the things of the flesh, you are hostile to God because you are unsubmissive to God, you're retaliating against what God has said is good, and therefore you cannot be pleasing to God if that is the case. And I think this is important because it eliminates a, an option of nominal Christianity. It eliminates the option of cultural Christianity, of Jesus plus anything else. It's sort of this Jesus is my homeboy mentality. You guys remember when those shirts came out? I don't know why people still create shirts like that, but it had this kind of Fabio-looking character that looked more like he was from Southern California than he was from Israel doing the peace sign. Jesus is my homeboy. 
if Jesus, if all Jesus is, is your homeboy, that's a problem. But some people live like that, that, that Jesus is my homeboy. Me and God are good. I certainly don't seek him with my whole heart, but I, I try to go to church when I can. I, I may even tithe from time to time. Me and God are good. Well, no, I don't orient my whole life around him. That's a little weird. I mean, that's for the, you know, the people that want to do ministry for their, for their career. I'm not that. Right? I'm, I'm for God, for God and country. I can do that. But it's just, it's just an add-on. It's, yeah, God can be a part of my life, but he's not going to become the whole of it. I'm not going to pursue him with everything I have. I'm not going to set my mind on him only when I need something. This sounds mean. Sounds like Paul is being mean. I feel like you're being a little harsh here, Paul. But he's, he's not. This is the most gracious thing that Paul can do to tell you there are not three options. There's two. You have either been captivated by the beauty of Jesus, the glory of the gospel, and the spirit has now come into your life is transforming you because you have seen Jesus or you're hostile to God. He says, if you think you're in a middle ground, you're probably on the wrong side of the fence. And that's really important because in our country, it is so easy to have Christianity as an add-on, as just another thing that's a part of the American life. Paul is saying that is not the case here. But now here in verse nine, he's gonna shift his focus a little bit. He's gonna focus back on believers to reassure them of their standing with Christ, to reassure them of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse nine. He says, you, however, again, talking to believers, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So when we trust Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is saying something that kind of seems a little bit obvious. I mean, essentially he's saying, if you're in the Spirit, you have the Spirit. If you're in the Spirit, you have the Spirit. How do I know if I'm in the Spirit? Well, you have the Spirit. How do I know if I have the Spirit? Well, you're in the Spirit. So it doesn't answer a whole lot right here at least. But if we're trying to get a more full understanding of this, I think a great note would be Ephesians chapter one, verses 13 through 14. This is also Paul talking here. Look at what he says. He says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So if you're in the spirit, you have the spirit. How do I know if I have the spirit? Well, have you heard the word of truth, the gospel? Have you believed in it to the point where it has reoriented your life? And if so, then you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance in the end. Such a good passage right there. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now he goes on in, to continue this thought in Romans 8.10. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
So he says, although our bodies are wasting away, although there is death in our body, in our flesh, the spirit that dwells in us brings us life through the righteousness of Christ, through all of the things that we have talked about at the beginning of this sermon. So he's reassuring them of their standing with God. But then he has one final verse here. And it's a verse that we can skip over, but we can't afford to because it's so big. There's so much packed into this verse. In verse 11, he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So up until this point, Paul has primarily focused on the present, or at least the present implications of past events, like the cross, like being sealed with the Spirit. But now Paul is taking a big leap forward, and he is looking into the future. In fact, he's looking all the way into the future to the resurrection of believers in the end. Now, we don't have time to get into the eschatology and the end times, and Jason's going to be back in a couple weeks, and he'd love to talk to you about that, all right? I'm sure. Just tell him that Pastor Chad sent you. Don't put my name in your mouth, right? It can get complicated, but at the bare minimum, we know that to be absent from the body is to be with Christ in heaven, but one day Jesus will return to inaugurate the new heaven and new earth. And so in that moment, we as Christians will be raised and reunited with our bodies and we will be renewed. This is the event that Paul is looking forward to here. And I don't think he's just looking at it or bringing that up as, you know, a fun little fact or a, hey, look at me, I know so much, or hey, let's get into a theological scuffle. I think Paul is bringing this up to continue the assurance that we have through Christ and through the Spirit. Because Paul is saying, listen, you're not just sealed and filled with the Spirit for now, but I'm gonna keep you to the end. I'm giving you the assurance now that you are in Christ, you, are, you have been filled with the Spirit, but In the future, at the resurrection, I got that too. And I got everything in between. That's why I think this verse is so important to round out this discussion because it brings up the truth that God will keep those who are his until the end. God will be faithful to his people to the very end. And if you are a struggler and you resonate with Romans 7 like I do, then this is a wonderful truth. Because there are times in life where you can get to the point where you think, okay, I know I have the spirit now, but I don't know. I struggle with sin. I struggle with the storms of life. Am I gonna make it to the end? Is God's patience gonna run out with me? Is God's grace gonna run out with me? How do I know that what I have now is gonna be there then? Paul says, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. One of my favorite passages dealing with this truth that God keeps us is in 1 Thessalonians. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. 
This is also Paul. Paul wrote a lot of letters, in case you didn't catch on to that yet. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He's saying, listen, Christian, God will sanctify you completely. He's not gonna not finish the job. He will present you blameless in the end, covered in the blood of Christ, not partially cleaned up, not patched up, but blameless. And in case your doubt won't let you believe these truths, let me remind you, he will surely do it. That is the truth that we see at the end of this passage that we've been looking at. And that's the truth we see all over the Bible that God is in relentless pursuit of his people. He is actively seeking his people. He's not in his divine lazy boy kicking back, waiting for us to come to him. We have a seeking God, a pursuing God, an active God who will seek us and show us his love and break us if necessary and bind us after the fact. Our God pursues us, he keeps us. So what is, what is Paul getting at? How, how does all this tie in together? It means this, if you have trusted in Jesus, that's the no condemnation part, have been sealed with the spirit and are walking in the spirit as a result, you are secure to the end. And that is something that we must believe and we must cherish and we must hide in our hearts at all times. How can this be true? Because you're not condemned, you've been set free. Sin is condemned, righteousness is imputed to you and you've been empowered by the spirit to walk with a God who promises to keep you. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these truths. Thank you for everything that we have looked at. All of the beauty that is in this passage, all of the assurance that is in this passage, all of the blessing that is in this passage is so amazing. We thank you for that, God. For those of you in here who have never trusted in Jesus, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that. No one looking around or talking at this time. If you've never trusted in Jesus to save you, to condemn sin on your behalf, to give you his righteousness, to keep you to the end, if you've never trusted Jesus to do that, you can do that today. In fact, I wanna lead you in a prayer. And it's not a magical prayer. It's not specific words. It's really just me helping you find the words to call out to God for the first time. So if you want to do that today, you wanna to put your trust in Jesus, repeat this after me to yourself, not out loud. Say, dear God, I see my need for saving and righteousness. I know that I cannot save myself. So I ask you to save me, to condemn sin on my behalf, to give me your righteousness, to keep me, to seal me. 
trust in you, Jesus. And if that is you and for the very first time you called out to God to put your trust in Jesus, I want you to do something for me. I want you to lift up your hand. And I want you to lift up that hand as high and as proud as you can. No one's looking at you. I want you to lift that up to say, today was the day that I trusted in Jesus for the very first time. I've given my life to him. I've trusted in the cross and the resurrection. And I want you to keep that hand up in the air. We have some response team members that have some Bibles that would love to give you a Bible to help you get started on the right foot. Let me pray for the rest of us. God, we love you. We are so thankful for these truths. God, I pray that you would help us believe them. God, we believe, but would you help our unbelief? Would you sink these truths deep into our heart to where we can live in them and rejoice in them and spread them to those around us? All the glory goes to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.